guess the, the first learning was actually get out of the way, let the people that understand the teaching and learning and the thing, let them drive it and listen and use your values as a reference point. You're listening to the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log. Stories from inspiring educators, leaders, and influencers who are challenging the status quo. Today's episode is sponsored by My Study Series, an online learning platform supporting Kiwi teachers and students through NCEA. With the ability to track student progress and quiz results, data provided by My Study Series ensures teachers remain informed of how well their students are performing. Check it out now at mystudyseries.co.nz. everyone and welcome to episode 59 of the augmented learning podcast and video log where you're able to grow learn and develop by accessing high quality pld when you need it most i'm your host carl condoliff and once again i'm joined by my co-host celia fleck celia how's your week started off it started off well it's been a beautiful day um i got out for a run this evening and it was just a stunning still evening with beautiful colours in the sky, so I'm pretty happy today. Last couple of days have been fantastic. Uh, over where I am in Miramar, um, the sunrise has been, you know, just beautiful, bright oranges, um, so it's just been a stunning couple of days. You're, now, this is your first, you've done your first podcast episode, which is which is fantastic, and, and what, a, what a guest to have for your first one. You spoke with Gregor Fountain and you already have a bit of a prior relationship with him. Is that correct? Yeah, I was trying to think where that prior relationship began, whether it was one of those virtual relationships that begin on Twitter and then um, then you meet that person face to face. But essentially it developed when he was the principal at um, Paraparaumu College and my oldest boy then attended there. Um, and that's kind of where it, it grew a lot more, I guess, yeah. He's now, he's the third principal we've had on the podcast. We've had Claire Amos, we've had Prue Kelly, and actually you could probably, he would be the fourth if we counted Gary, uh, who was an ex-principal by the time I had him on the podcast. But Gregor's been a bit of an urban legend for me. And I think this is quite funny because uh, for many, many years, I've heard you talk about him. I've had Aaron Mead talk about how wonderful Gregor is. And then I had Blair Simpson, who was a DP at, at, at Ongatai College. And and Blair would often say that um, Gregor is the most amazing leader that he's had in, in essentially any context. So it's been really fascinating to hear hear your interview with him and, and hear some of the things uh, that he talks about, but also I've managed to um, this year really get to know him a little bit better. And I've had several conversations, and I've been to a couple of hui's that that he has been at and helped lead. Um, would you say he's one of the best educational leaders in New Zealand at the moment? Yeah, I think so. In terms of um, you know, I often talk about that brave and bold leadership, and that's how I've described him. Um, so yeah, I believe so in terms of my my dealings with him, um, what I observe of him um, on social media, being being really brave and and advocating for his students and his community and his staff, and so yeah, I believe so. During the interview, what stood out most for you? I think the stood out, the thing that stood out for me was his reference to values both both kind of explicitly and implicitly so the first part of the the conversation you can really get a sense of who he is and what he values and what's important to him and therefore what has influenced him becoming the person that he is and he holds really strong values and 
relationships are a big part of that. But then he also goes on to talk about, you know, values education and how important it is in a school setting to really live your values, not just have these words that are perhaps written somewhere on a piece of paper, maybe on a poster kind of thing. So that's that's what stood out for me. Yeah, I I really enjoyed hearing him talk about people. He really values people and, and he holds, he, he surrounds himself with, with very excellent educators and he's obviously been influenced by a lot of amazing educators. And, you know, he, he talked about Katie and, and Andrew and Hayden and, and Gary Hen, Henley Smith, and these are all people that he mentioned um, and spoke very highly of. And it's it's quite funny because all of those people that he mentions, I've, I've, I've encountered or worked with throughout my career. And I'd agree that these people are, are really amazing, amazing individuals and educators. And then he, he talked about Jacinda Ardern and, and the influence that she's had through COVID and how um, she kind of paved the way for us to lead in new ways. And so all of these things for me came down to his, how he values people. And, and I thought that was fascinating. And I imagine that if you, you know, could interview every great leader, they would have very similar traits, like like you mentioned, the values, and then also the people people that that I mentioned and, and my takeaways. So, um, I, I think it's I think it's an amazing interview. I think you did really well for your first one. So congratulations there, um, and I think the audience um, are really going to enjoy this episode. So, let's jump straight in with uh, your interview with Gregor Fountain. Kia ora koutou. thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode of the Augmented Learning Podcast and Tanakwe Gregor, thank Tenakwe. you especially for um, agreeing to have this kūrero with me today, I'm really looking forward to it. Well it's taken a while to schedule hasn't it? It has. Lockdown and various other things, we've been talking about this for a long time. I think <laughs> I was thinking about that today and I think about over six months and so given what's happened in those six months... Mm probably all have quite a different flavour yeah. than it might have if we'd got together in January, I'm yeah. sure. But yeah. Oh, yeah. thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so you are principal um, here at Wellington College, yeah. um, but obviously there's been a journey that's uh-huh. got you here. Can you tell us a little bit about that Sure, journey? sure. Well, I went to Wellington College, so I was a student here in the 1980s, um, and uh, yeah, and, and and when I left here, I went to Victoria University. Originally, I was going to be a journalist, um, but realised that I was going to follow our family tradition of being teachers pretty soon. Um, and I think at university, I really fell in love with history, particularly New Zealand history. And it was an amazing sort of moment of realisation that I just loved studying the history of the place I was living um, and I've never never really recovered from that. It was like a huge thing for me. Um, and so I really wanted to teach um, history um, and and really decided that at that end of that first year at university. So sort of re, reoriented um, myself and did my teacher's training year as it was in those days at the Christchurch College of Education, like many secondary teachers of my vintage. Um, before teaching at Morrinsville College um, in the Waikato, so had the experience of going to a you know provincial town, and for someone who'd been brought up in sort of downtown Wellington or urban urban Wellington, uh, that was an amazing experience. So I taught there for three years. Um, I then went to St Paul's Collegiate in Hamilton for four years as head of history. Went to Rose Hill College in Papakura, um, where my boss was Barley Hark, you know, who was a very oh, big influence. Wow been a really big influence on my career Uh, and then at that point uh, having thought that Auckland would be a great place to build a career um, my partner Heidi got a job back in Wellington at the Rangatahi unit Um, she's a psychologist who works with young people and that was uh, so suddenly we found ourselves back in Wellington and I hadn't deliberately planned to come back to Wellington College but at that point I um, this was where there was a vacancy and so I came as head of history to Wellington College, became deputy principal here with a teaching and learning sort of curriculum focus. And then as you know, um, Celia, five, just over five years at Paraparomu College as the principal, which um, 
was an amazing privilege and I still miss it actually. Yeah, <laughs> we, the community I'm sure still misses you. Oh, that still <laughs> go from strength to strength since I left. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then um, and then uh, then when the opportunity came to come back to Wellington College um, that was something that as a family or Hayden I really agonised over mm. we were really settled really proud and enjoying the work at Paraproma College um, our young family were you know settled in Waikanae School um, but when we got a sense that maybe there was an opportunity to think about Wellington College and boys education I guess in some different ways I think that I sort of realised that it might be something that I regret. Um, so it was with a lot of pain that I left yeah. part of primary college. You can't invest in a school community and then, you know, and invest in relationships and then just stop. And that's what you do as a principal. Yeah. When you actually leave, you literally. That's what you do. That's what yeah. I see you do. Well, and you especially. have, yeah, but I think also when you leave, you have to get out of the way. Mm. Um, and that is painful. I underestimated that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, here we are, two and a, two and a bit, two and a, two in a term, two yeah. years in a term, nine terms uh, later here at um, here at Wellington College. So yeah, it's a it's a you know, a privilege again to be in this role and it's great to be back in Wellington. Really enjoying it. Cool. So you mentioned a family, is that yeah. right? A family of teachers. So oh, is that yeah. what kind of influenced you, do you think, in yeah. taking this career path? Well, yeah, so I have had uh, generations of uh, teachers in my family. Yeah. Um, my dad was uh, a primary school teacher briefly before having a career teaching in applied linguistics at the university. Um, so what he did there was he trained teachers of English. Um, and then he left sort of the university world, I guess, in the early 80s. And he worked in churches. Uh, and he had a my 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 parents uh, together, but particularly my dad, had um, a real commitment to children and to young people, and I guess to what we sort of called in the old days sort of discovery learning. And I, through the way that I saw my parents working, particularly in churches and with children and kids programs, I, I think that I absorbed a lot of that. And I remember being at teachers college. And uh, we were having a lecture about teaching history and about the use of cartoons. And the lecturer was saying that, um, you know, the Clark teacher was, you know, the, the lecturer, history lecturer was talking about how cartoons are a great way of reinforcing learning. And, I rem and so the idea being, you know, you'd teach some content and then you'd pull out a cartoon and you'd do some analysis together as a class. And I knew at that moment I'd never do it that way, that I'd always do the cartoon first <laughs> because you would catch the interest and attention mm. of the kids and then you would get them to draw. And I know that's what my dad would do. Yeah. So um, uh, although I come from a family of storytellers, there was a real sense in the way that I saw my dad work, particularly in, you know, child evangelism effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I saw the way that they engaged kids and young people and I think the other thing that I saw them do in their work and saw a lot in my dad's approach was he never really treated children as many adults like he treated them like with real dignity and care um, so I there was a he's a very, and I see him actually and my mum with our kids now and I see the way that they build genuine relationships and there's no condescending mm. um, and they never play power games um, and I didn't notice that as a kid in this family and you know our family wasn't perfect or anything our upbringing wasn't perfect it had tragedies and, and various other things but I, I think we did see a model of engaging children that has had a really big impact on me and he, there was a, a reunion here at Wellington College of the I don't know what it must have been, a 40-year-on sort of reunion. We do these reunions. And um, and I was just chatting to this person, and he said, oh, do you know a guy called Ron Fountain? I said, oh, it's my dad. And he said, he was my teacher at Plymouthton School. And he said, he was the most engaging. And he told stories from more than 40 years ago, mm. because it was 40 years ago that he left Wellington College, probably 50 years ago, yeah. being at Plymouthton School. And my dad 
taking him on rocky shore field trips and things like that and I'm thinking wow that's amazing and that was such a delight to be able to relay that so yeah so um yeah so lots of uncles and aunts are all teachers um my dad my dad um was a teacher my mum wasn't a teacher but she formally but she would have been a brilliant yeah a brilliant teacher really great engaging um storyteller she came from a really working class background didn't have in Glasgow didn't have the probably the same opportunities that my dad had had to do that but yeah teachers Mm. everywhere Celia my sister's teacher. <laughs> yeah. Everywhere. It's often the way, isn't it? Like, if, if there's one, there's, there's ten kind of thing in the family. Um, what about when you were a student? Like, what were you like as a student? And did any of your experiences in the education system as a student kind of help inform how you were as a teacher, how you are now as a school yeah. leader? Um, so I did have some wonderful teachers. That's definitely true. Um, I think of a couple of primary teachers that were particularly engaging and caring. Um, I was quite an anxious kid, so that desire to have someone who cared um, was like really important to me. Um, and at high school, I also had some very memorable teachers, a um, couple of real standouts. Um, Kim Tattersall, who's only recently retired from here as a classical studies teacher, you know, who represented the ancient world amazingly, and also some wonderful English teachers who brought text to life. I remember the wonderful, um, the wonderful um, Gail Pidaway, who taught us English and classics, I think, here, and I met her later in the Waikato. But, you know, we were studying the wasp, so she wore her bumblebee earrings. Yeah. So she was thinking when she got dressed, oh, what am I teaching today? I thought that was amazing. Yeah. But I think I also had some really, like I had some other teachers, both at primary and secondary school, that, you know, that um, were poor. Uh, and I, you know, had a primary school teacher who I really think was a bully. Um, and I found that just horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a you know and, and I think and, and similarly at high school here you know I had some teachers who um, were really just interested in giving us notes and I remember thinking in history as a student at Wellington College it could be so much better than this it was just about notes you know it was the obsession of getting the notes yeah. and we just would copy notes for the whole time and that had a really big impact on me. I just was, when I became a teacher, I was just determined that my classes would never write notes. Um, just no matter how much they wanted to, we were going to do things with the text. We yeah, were going yeah. to, you know, we were going to, you know, it was it was never going to be about writing notes, even when the kids wanted them. Mm. Um, and so that shaped, I think, in a, like, in a, so some of those negative experiences also shaped the way that I, I taught. Um, yeah, um, and I I think, you know, I started teaching really before the internet age, but, you know, the internet meant that the teacher no longer had to be con- in control of all the information and all the the notes. The kids could get them, mm. you know, and that was, a, uh, that was a huge sort of moment where I realised that actually the students didn't need me for the content, Yeah, that actually they had other ways of accessing it. So we could then... You know, and I, I we didn't call it this, but you know, almost in a in a flipped, right? We never called it that, but it was almost like, okay, well, we've we've got the content. What are we going to do with it? Yeah. What what are we going to? Yeah. What are we going to do with that? How can we analyze it? What new knowledge can we create out of this? Became a really big part of the way that I taught history, and I think see, I've never been happier than when I was teaching history. I think it was like, you know, it's a privilege to be a principal, but I think I look back on the sort of 12 or 14 years that I had as head of history in three different schools as being a, such a rich, fun time. Yeah. Did you always aspire to be a principal? Uh, well, it's not very fashionable to say that you did, you know, and I don't think that I ever sat there with a plan yeah. around that. Um but I do think that I there were key moments sort of in my career where I realised I wanted to keep that option open. Yeah. Um, and if I had my time again, I'd probably do it more slowly, Slow it to down. be honest. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I, you know, I remember making a deliberate decision to do the Masters of Educational, wasn't leadership, but the Master of Education, mm. thinking that that would be a good thing in case I wanted to. I remember other people getting DPs positions and thinking, oh, that's interesting. Like, I, if they could do it, I could do it. You know, I remember thinking that. Yeah. Um, and then I also remember a key moment when I was a deputy principal and I hadn't really... It, suddenly the penny dropped that as a portfolio holder, as a DP, you didn't control other things. And I realised that, that as a curriculum leader you if you you didn't have you, you, that that was just one part of a much bigger thing mm. and if you couldn't have a highly permissive uh, student focused curriculum if you had a punitive discipline system yeah that and it hadn't occurred to me like why are those it, it suddenly it dropped one day but the, the penny just dropped for me yeah that I thought oh and I thought oh Maybe it's time to start applying to be a principal. Yeah, it's about those spheres of influence, isn't it? And yeah, and I wanted yeah. to have influence beyond the portfolio, but also I felt that I couldn't, that I actually couldn't have influence, as much influence even within my portfolio because yeah. I because other people controlled other levers. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and so I do remember Heidi and I were in Waikanae and. I think we might have had our eldest son Jamin then as a you know baby twins hadn't come yet and we were up there and I said to Heidi would we go would we do Paraparomu would we do would we and we were like wow yeah that, and we, I think we agreed that's as far north as we would go yeah with the grandparents being in Wellington and all that sort of thing and yeah and sure enough that was sort of the yeah. first the next job we didn't know came anything up. really anything yeah. about the school um and suddenly yeah suddenly we we found ourselves up at Paraparomu. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Bali Hark. What lessons in leadership did you learn from him? Well, um, I think what Bali showed was that he showed that um, that how a leader can articulate big ideas that holds stuff together. When I worked at Rose Hill College, I really felt that the work that I was doing in the history department there was part of some bigger plan around what we were doing because he was able to articulate a vision mm. um, for what school was like. And he totally practised what he preached. So this was in 2002, and we were just starting at Rose Hill um, in the restorative journey and um, I remember the guidance counsellor doing some restorative work with a class that I had that was you know, really difficult but we had this moment where something happened, I can't remember the exact details but our server got pinched at school and might even have got pinched by a contractor in the school and um, we, lo- we all lost our reports so as a staff we were just so furious we'd written these reports yeah and then the server had been like pinched and sold off somewhere or something this was the story anyway as i remember it hopefully you're not listening barley and um (laughs) and anyway we were all like ready to tear this you know we were so angry as a staff quite rightfully you know and barley says well at this school we practice restorative practice so who would like to be part of a small group of people that are going to meet with this person and explain the things? And I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. That ability to take the leadership that we were showing with our kids yeah. and to say, that's what we believe in. Um, yeah, so so there, that was a, a really good... So I was only at Rosa for one year. But it was a really influential year. And, and Cheryl Offner was there too. So she's, you know, later became the principal of Selwyn. And I'd known Cheryl through history circles. So they were a pretty inspiring group of people to work with. And they were quite hard to say no to. You'd sort of like, you'd go in thinking something and then you'd come out of the offices with a job, you know. And you, you felt some moral imperative to sort of go and do that. So, 
Yeah, I was, I was sad to leave uh, Rose Hill College. It had been a, it was quite a big transition to leave from St Paul's, which had been a private school in Hamilton, which I'd loved and enjoyed, and then to go to a really large, um, you know, school in in, in Counties Monaco. Um, it, it had been a bit of a culture shock, and then but by the time at the end of the year, I really realised that I was leaving something quite special. Mm. Yeah, and similarly, you know, when I got to Wellington College, you know, Roger Moses had a totally different style uh, or, or, or a different philosophy. But his human warmth, you know, and his ability to do whaka whanaungatanga, to make connections, um, was extraordinary, really. And Roger injected warmth and energy into the absolute right things. And, you know, his legacy at this school of aligning belonging and achievement was pretty inspirational mm. what he did over that time and I appreciate that even more now that I'm in that role than yeah. I did when I worked here with him yeah yeah um so when my son was in year nine at Parapara Umu College I remember like right starting year nine and so that was probably your second year I would have thought as a principal maybe 2014 yeah I'm just trying yeah. to think and anyway he came home from school and he was like oh mum Mr. Fountain knows everybody's name. <laughs> and I just remember thinking how fantastic it was, whether you did know everybody's name or not, the fact that the kids got that sense from you that you took the time to learn everybody's name was just fantastic. Has that been a real big thing for you in terms of that, that yeah, visibility? Well, that I mean, you talk oh, about relationships. But oh, visibility has been... You know, one of my deliberate acts, I think, yeah. and I don't think I I, I have a you know an, an old friend, Mark Edgecombe, who's now the head of English at Tawa College, and um, I've I've lived with Mark, flattered with Mark, our fr- our families are friends. I you think know. I went to school with Mark at Tawa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. And Mark was uh, Mark was I think when I went to Paraparuma College, I think he was probably the head of English at um, Hutt Valley High at that point, but he taught here at Wellington College at one stage and. Anyway, he said to me, there are two types of principles as far as kids are concerned, visible and invisible. Yeah. And he said that um, principles either, once you've got the reputation, you can't shake it. So he said, he said to me, his experience was that if, if you are a principal who is seen, then when the kids see you, even if you don't, uh, even if you're not seen that often, you have the reputation, they go, oh yeah, we always see him. Mm. And if you're the principal that has the reputation of not being seen, then when they see you, they say, oh, nice of him to turn up, or her to turn up, we've never seen, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and although, um, and so I remember thinking that, and I think, okay, I'm just going to turn up, I'm going to be sort of out and about. But really, Celia, when I started the principal, I didn't know what else to do. Like, I honestly didn't really know what the role entailed. And my predecessor, Richard, at Parapuma College, had amazing skills at administration. Like, amazing. He did the timetable, he had all these clever things, he was, like, amazing on staffing and budgeting and stuff. And I had none of those skills. Still don't. Um... And when I started there, people, and he'd been there for over 20 years, and when people, when I started there, people were coming into office and asking questions about timetable. So I said, I've got no idea, you know? And all I knew was actually get out, get out, get out and, and be visible mm-hmm. around that. And I got such warm feedback about that that it became quite addictive sort yeah. of around that. So I didn't know all the kids' names at Paraparomu, um, although I definitely had that reputation. But at one stage, that school got down to only just over a 1,000 students. So that is possible. That is manageable. But I really, you know, here where we have almost 1,800 students and, you know, they're just about all boys. <laughs> so that's what, that makes it harder to, um, I think when we're in the co-ed school, you, you know, you automatically can sort them into two groups for like remembering their names. Yes. But, you know, here there's like 12 Theos, <laughs> you know, um, uh so I am, I think it's a real struggle for me, having developed um, a style in one school, I still haven't quite worked out how to, you know, what's the style that's going to work here, because I don't really know how to do sort of more removed CEO type things. So it's a real leadership challenge to know 
what you get involved in, what you don't in a school this size. And I still haven't um, sort of worked that out. And I feel like I don't know the kids here um, like I did at Paraparamu yet. It's going to take longer because it's bigger. Um, and um, we had an assembly today and I noticed that I knew more of them, you know, mm-hmm. the ones that were being, that we were giving a lot of awards out today and I recognised far more parents and was able to do that. So I think we're sort of slowly getting there. But mm-hmm. um, I think the job is about articulating a vision for the community and it's about building relationships and restoring relationships to get there. Yeah. And you can only do that by being personable, out and about, enjoying the young people and constantly reminding yourself that it's their school, not yours. Um, But you can't do everything. So one of the, I guess, um, decisions, and I think it is a decision that I've made, and and at times, you know, criticised as maybe over the top, but it's been pointed out to me in appraisals by staff, that I tend to prioritise the being out and about at lunchtime and interval when I can with the students Mm. and I'm not visible in the staff room Um, and similarly um, just a little bit of feedback that's come is that the kids like seeing you out and about but actually they'd quite like to see me in class a bit more Mm. and 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 um, so there's some work to do about where do you put your resources how do you manage your time what are the tasks that you need to do which are the ones you need to trust other people to do yeah um, and it's such a big job that it's never finished. Um, yeah. So yeah. So those are those are challenges, um, and um, I, and it's a, it's definitely being a challenge to like take that style from one context to another. And I underestimated that. Yeah. Um, I noticed on your on your Twitter feed this week that you um, posted about the Year Ten camp. And you used hashtag leadership. So they were on a tramp, I think. I'm not yeah, sure yeah, if they were yeah. overnight camp or if it was yeah, day yeah, tramp. But, but yeah. hashtag leadership. So um, what, what made you do that? Like, what do you see in terms of those outdoor experiences oh, that right. contribute to leadership? Well, the first thing I what, first thing is that I should be, like, really clear. I wasn't on that tramp. I've been sent the photo of it. <laughs> Sometimes people say, oh, my goodness, how did you get here and get here? Um, whereas quite a lot of the um, photos are, like, sometimes sent to me. Um, well, uh, the hashtags that we tend to use on the tweet are our school values. Right. So, um, so when I came here, um, well, when I'd been at Paraprima College, we had been through a series of uh, strategic plans and, you know, articulated a range of things. And we also were a PB4L school at Paraprima and... As a result of various iterations and consultations, we developed the care, you know, matrix at Paraparuma College, which was collaboration, active learner, respect, effective self-manager, as a framework of for values. And I think I learned there that um, the values could be really powerful when they were seen as being across the board, not mm. just about student behaviour. And there was a great moment where Lawrence on our school board at Paraparuma you know, came up with this idea that this other good learner profile that we developed, that it was time to park that and just to use the PB4L values as the school values because then we weren't didn't have different sort of reference points. Yeah. And so when I came here, I had a real sense that, um, you know, that a values-based approach was a really powerful approach and to be able to communicate what the values were of the school in different ways... Uh, and we taught a student here. I, last time I was at Wellington College, I taught this you know, student, Max Harris, and he became, amongst other things, a Rhodes Scholar and the All Souls Examination Fellow and a remarkable young man. Um, and he wrote a book um, called, uh, called The New Zealand Project where he argued that the whole nation should be based around values and that we should articulate what these values were. So at Wellington College, you know, the boys use that they they call the school coal um they didn't used to but somewhere in the last 20 years this sort of idea has started that like you know they talk about going to coal um and so we use c-o-l-l as a frame for our values that came out of a consultation so leadership is one of the coal values yeah um 
and what our Pacifica community and Māori community told us in the consultation is that leadership's not about a badge. Leadership's about serve, serving. Yes. And that leadership is service. And that when you live out the values, you're leading. Um, and so this has been a long way to get to your question. But I know that in those tramps, that those tramps are where a lot of kids serve. Yeah. Where they help each other, where they're encouraging others when they're doing those things. So we believe in a, we articulate a vision of leadership that's about shared leadership, it's about responsive leadership, it's about service. And I think that those tramps and duke of ed things and some of that outdoor ed are times where those natural quiet leaders just emerge. Um, yeah. So that's probably more thought than I gave to it when I was just like, put the, flat, put the hashtag down. Yeah. But that's that's the sort of idea. And we did have a different, uh, another senior Duke of Ed tramp earlier this year where a student got injured and the two other boys um, were extraordinary leaders in the way that they got him out. Mm. Uh, and we had a morning tea here for the families that had been involved in that just to celebrate these acts of leadership yeah these were quiet kids who did the right thing took extra weight in their packs carried you know helped the person with the busted leg out and it was an inspiring story so a lot of that learning happens outside of the classroom eh? and at this school you know with such an enormous extracurricular program you know the the hashtags and the tweets have been one way of you know, transferring the values that sit in the classroom and you uh, talked about in assembly into those other areas is quite a powerful, the hashtags on the Twitter quite powerful mm. ways of just articulating those ideas. Yeah. So we've had, um, we've had quite an extraordinary last few months and here we are, second to last day of term two, which yeah. has been described by many as a 22-week totally. term. Yeah. Um, what's it been like leading a school community through this experience and how how have you been looking after the well-being of the staff and the mm. students and the community and yourself? Because mm. we all know that we're not effective leaders if we're not yeah, looking yeah. after ourselves as well. So. Well, I'd, say that, I'd, I'd say the first thing that I've realised, and I don't have any grief about this, but I realised that um, I was no longer the teaching and learning guy. You know, I'd always thought I was the curriculum teaching and learning guy. But, you know, and Katie Rules and Andrew Savage here as our curriculum teaching and learning DPs, we've got people who just understand 21st century learning and relational pedagogy in a way I never did or do. And the best way that I can illustrate this is I was up at the North Island Rowing Champs um, about uh, a week before, eight, eight, eight or nine days before lockdown. Mm. And I was at the North, it seems amazing. I actually took one of my eight-year-olds up with me, which just seems ludicrous now. I know, you know. but things so, happened so quickly, didn't they? So yeah. I was up there, on, I was up there uh, at Karapiro, and I was there on the Saturday and, you know, there's a lot of cultural capital at rowing, as you'll know, and a lot of a lot of Wellington College parents in the in the know. And they were saying to me, I think someone was quietly saying, I think we've got about a week and, you know, or ten days or this thing's moving really quickly or yeah. this sort of thing. And I messaged my senior team and I said, Should we do a trial? Like why don't we do a learning at home trial? How early do you think we could do it? And then I said, we'll just, I said, oh, we'll just run our normal timetable, but we'll just run it online and we'll get people at home. So anything like this. So I sort of dropped that message. A few more messages sort of went back and forth. By the time I landed at the airport on Sunday, early Sunday evening, Andrew and Katie had developed a whole strategy around online learning, but they took me on about the idea of the timetable mm. right from the beginning. Uh, Katie said, Gregor, we're not going to run our normal timetable. Firstly, why would we? You know, why would we? You have a timetable so you can move people around a school. They're not at school. Yeah. Secondly, we're all going to be home with our own kids. How can we tie people to a certain time? And she said, and what an opportunity to actually practice what we preach around agency and do this. So, you know, I felt like, whoa, okay. So, you know, and they were so right about that. So we ended up having a trial on the Friday, um, 
And then Katie and Andrew sent out a survey to students, parents and staff that Friday. And then they started collating the data. And by Monday morning, which was the day the Prime Minister sent us home, They'd presented a, 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 that these are some learnings we've got from the weekend or from the trial on Friday. Here's some things that we've got. Here's some things. And reset it slightly around that so that on the Tuesday we were, we were underway with sort of a, a new model. Mm. And while we did get some, you know, one in college being a boys' school, we, um, we inevitably have lots of people with sisters at other schools and... and and at um, at this school, it's one in East, one in Girls, Queen Margaret, and Marsden. Mm. Like you know, that a lot of it. Oh, and some at Wellington High and other places, Onslow. Um, and so there's comparisons. Like parents have comparisons. And um, initially, there were some people that you know, parents who really craved the structure and wanted more Zoom and wanted more, you know, of those of those things. Um, but you know also people really valued the well-being and flexible approach and the high trust model that we did and I think there was this lovely restlessness sort of self-review culture that Katie and Andrew really led during that time which meant that we did sort of reset things as we went our kids did crave teacher contact but they didn't crave being talked at or taught what they wanted was a check-in yeah um, and so, yeah, so th- so so I guess that the first learning was actually get out of the way, let the people that understand the teaching and learning and the thing, let them drive it and listen and use your values as a reference point. And 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 the and that's what happened. Like the model we had was framed against the school values. Um, Kate and Andrew were always looking for, you know, navigational tools around that. So that was, so that was one. That was one thing. And then my role, I really missed the students. That was like, and I, I didn't get to sit in on these many of these. You know, I said we had some student leadership sort of Google mm. Meets and things, which were really awesome. Um, so yeah, so 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 there was. So my role often became more sort of checking in with staff and and being able to do those sorts of things. But I, uh, yeah, so I can't remember exactly where we started with this. I'll let you ask a follow-up question. But the first big lesson was let the other people lead who know what they're doing. Yeah. And get out of the way. Yeah. One of the other things I noticed you do, again, your your presence on, on Twitter, was your very kind of calm leadership around some of the anxiety around NCEA, which... Mm-hmm. Yeah, how how did you kind of navigate that one, or what well, did you think yeah. was the most important thing? Yeah, well, I think that we were just aware that I mean, firstly, that families were under a lot of pressure, some families particularly, mm. um, and we noticed that um, one of the big pieces of anxiety was around the NCA and how we did that and. And we honestly believe that the flexibility of the system would enable us to get through yeah. um, that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we tried to reassure our community around um, those issues um, because we thought that if they're anxious, they're not going to achieve or do those things. But we actually believe that the flexibility of the system would enable us to, to get through on that. Um, so yeah, I remember tweeting out just something like "We've got this." We've got this. Yeah, you we, did yeah, so, so, something like that. You did, and, and it like it got all these likes. It was like yeah. my goodness, and I got a, and and also we do a weekly, um, you know, we do a weekly email to our community, and often accompanied with a video of some description, and and that um, we got a lot of really positive feedback. Thank you for the reassurance around NCA. And yeah. I guess one thing I really underestimated when I became a principal was um, because I'd never really thought about hierarchy is when principals say things that matters. <laughs> and I learned at Paraparomu that I'd think, oh yeah, I'll just go have a chat to a teacher and they'd think they're being told off because the principal came to do that when I was just really trying to start a conversation or didn't mm. really, you know. But I also learned at Paraparomu College that as a principal, you can just turn up and I remember in the in the first few weeks that I was there, we had two mums in our school die, 
and you can just sort of knock on the door and you're sort of in, you know? And it made me realize that I'd never thought of till I was a principal that that you know what you say matters and when you turn up it sort of it, it, it sort of matters yeah and so i think that um it was really important at that moment for school leaders to say actually let's let's actually keep this in perspective around this it's a flexible system there are there's achievement that we can do that there's achievement that can keep happening and we've got plenty of time to sort of get get this sorted so here's hoping that that turns out to be the case <laughs> But yeah. Yeah. So have you given your staff or your students any messages around the holidays and, and their well being? Yeah, well, I mean it's time to be kind to yourself. I think we are barely holding on. And I was at Newtown School where my kids go to school for a, a sort of a, a short sort of uh, presentation um, sort of thing that my twins were doing in their Fano group. And um and yesterday, and I was just chatting to the teachers, and 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 they said, "Oh yeah, we are so tired. We expect the kids to be tired, but we're just not used to the staff being this tired." Yeah. And it's the same here. Um. Yeah. So. Yeah, we it, 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 we all need a bit of a reset and a bit of a refresh. Um. Yeah. I think that. Um. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't look back that fondly on the lockdown personally. I know some people do. Like there were some people that, found, you know, I found it incredibly full on for school and yeah. work, like just so full on and just no separation between, not even just between work and home, but even day and night. Like you just sort of like, you, just, you didn't have those, you know, I, I live in Newtown. I lived, I walked to school and walked back. Like those are markers of my sort of day and you had none of them. And you'd sort of work, and then you'd sort of go to bed, and then you'd just get up, and you'd sort of just be back into it. Um, and I realised at the end of lockdown, uh, and Hayden and I both felt this, sort of this realisation when we were sort of coming back to school under level two, and this is just general busy parent guilt, that even though my kids had been in the next room, I still hadn't been involved mm. in their learning. Yeah. Um, and so then I felt this sort of, I was quite, a, sort of got a bit upset about it. Like, oh my goodness, they were just next door. Yeah. And as teachers, we want to be involved in our own kids' sort of learning. And, 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 and I just sort of felt that it was sort of an opportunity missed. And just because we were so busy with, you know, online schooling, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you use that phrase, be kind. We've heard that a lot this year from our Prime Minister, who, yeah. who you taught. Um, That's true. So I, I don't know, I just think in terms of what you've spoken about today and um, and the way that you, um, you know, really hold values as, as kind of being a real key piece in um, in in schools and in yeah. young people's learning and in making, well, you know, helping develop good people. Um, you know, is that something that you connected with with Jacinda Ardern, you know, when when she was a student? Yeah. Like, well, I would think a lot about that because, mm. you know, obviously, I mean, I, you know, I taught Jacinda in my first three years teaching. Yeah. So, um, and... But, you know, you'd be the same city. You remember your first classes so well. Yeah, you do, actually. You um, do. Look, I don't really feel like I can take any credit for <laughs> um, Jacinda, but I really value having her as a friend now. And what I feel that she's done, and I've said this to her, and I said it during lockdown when we had a bit of a, you know, catch up, was she's allowed us to lead in new ways. Mm. She's given us space to lead in new ways. Um... So, you know, I had a parent here reflect to me that I had, I, I think, you know, we had a, um, oh, it was our, our school leadership assembly at the beginning of the year. And, uh, you know, at that point, coronavirus was just starting and, you know, it was a thing about the borders and things like this. And I don't think I'd planned to do this, but at the assembly, I said, I had said that, um, you know, that, that, you know, just conscious that you know this this um there was a danger with coronavirus that you know uh, our asian students could be you know subject to 
you know, being at such negative behaviour because the coronavirus was so closely associated with China at that mm. point. And I said that we needed to love each other. And I didn't really think about it. And a parent said to me, I can't believe it. She said, I think it's amazing that you talked about, you know, that at a boys' school you talked about loving. Um, and I think that Jacinda's leadership's given us some new language and some new ways of thinking about leadership um, and given us space to lead in different ways. Um, um, and, you know, I, I think it, it's taken me a long time to accept that my own style is not going to be particularly traditional or you know I'm not I'm not going to necessarily look like the headmaster of Wellington College you know yeah um and I think that I've you know accepted that my style is different and I think that these last few years have been you know have have, have enabled us I think I think Jacinda has enabled us to do this you know and I also think that um uh, kindness has been a, a great prime ministerial idea, as was social investment, which was a theme of Bill English's. You know, you know that idea that you, I think, you know, all leaders need big ideas. Yeah. You know, and social investment was an idea that cut across portfolios. You know, it wasn't just one bit of 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 that. And similarly, the theme of kindness has been something that has the potential, at least, to be to cut across different areas of society. Mm. So I do think that as leaders, we need to be able to, well, Paul Keating, Australian Prime Minister, talked about painting a new horizon. And I think that this is a time where we've been able to do that. Mm. Um, we have lots of um, health and PE teachers listening to this podcast. And at the end of the last year, you and I had a conversation about the role of the health and PE department in um Boys schools. Boys schools and yeah. school culture and, and those values and mm. can you perhaps talk a little bit about that and Yeah. Yeah, I I I I remember thinking I probably when I taught at St. Paul's Collegiate in Hamilton, um, I remember thinking that uh, you know, and that, that at that point that yeah, that was sort of a, that, that was a at that point a boys' school with two years of girls. And I remember thinking how beautiful those phys ed teachers were at that school and how there was a guy Gary Henry Smith you know teaches at Scots now and Gary's a former you know amazing New Zealand athlete former New Zealand sprinter sprint champion and and former rugby union and rugby league you know player and Gary was a phys ed teacher at St Paul's and a housemaster and what I loved about watching Gary in those days was he had little kids and he was so affectionate with them. And I remember thinking, what an amazing role model. You know, he would cuddle his kids and kiss his kids and they'd do athletics together and they were part of the life of, of William's house, which Gary was leading at that time. And similarly, the other Fazettas at St. Paul's at that time were were that you know they just weren't sports jocks they were just great they were great people mm. and it struck me that the phys ed the the phys ed department has a in a boys school particularly has a real role for setting that culture um because they are dealing with issues of masculinity and they are dealing with sport which is often where a lot of our testosterone is sort of out so i really think that the phys ed the phys ed, the appointment of a head of phys ed in a boys' school is just crucial for school culture. Mm. It's, as you know, we're pretty lucky and delighted to have Hayden. Yeah. <laughs> to have managed to appoint Hayden uh, to come here because he really does live out those values as somebody who has a real well being focus mm. um, and really cares about um, uh, kids and. and, and and is uh, brave and courageous, but also, you know, secure secure enough to to lead in that way in a boys' school. Yeah. So I think that those are. I do think that's really important. Mm. And you also have um, female teachers in your health and PE department. Yeah, is that, yeah, yeah. Well, that might have actually been an appointment prior to you. Yeah. But is that something that you kind of value in a boys' school as well? Yeah, across the school. So yeah. I think that. Um, I think that it is really, really important that uh, boys, as well as having strong male role models, have really great female role models in leadership. Um, 
so yeah so so we we were quite deliberate about looking for women that can join our team uh, in different ways and 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 um, yeah and 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 I think you know including PE and health that's going to be really important mm. yeah I mean I think that's it's a it's an era I, you know I think that you know, one in college is interesting because you know we draw on a pretty you know secular and and you know uh, urban community and and um, you know a lot of mums that went on college are feminists you know totally and and I you know we as we do our orientation and open days and things which we've sort of been doing the last couple of weeks I'm really aware that there's a lot of parents that are really anxious to ensure that coming to a boys school is not going to create a sort of toxic masculinity that is not going to serve them well in the sort of world we live in mm. um, and so I think that um, that's something we've got to be really deliberate about we've got to think about we've got to talk about we've got to act on um, one way we can do that is with staffing and another way is for us to make sure that we you know do talk about things like pornography that we do um, make sure that we address issues and, and use the advantage of us essentially being a you know of us being a boys school to be able to talk about those things a little bit more frankly yeah. uh, and to be really deliberate about about those things and also in the way that we restore harm to make sure they are done in really educational ways that means that our boys are going to learn from mistakes that they've made mm. yeah is boys education something that you are quite passionate about um uh, um yes but you can see a slight hesitation in the way that i've answered that i think that um I think that you know, the attraction of coming to one in college was not simply that it was a boys' school. It was that it was my school. Yeah. And it was about giving back to this school community, but also thinking about how we could lead it in some, you know, in, in, in some new ways and in a new era. Um, so um, uh, I don't think I would... I don't think there was a whole lot of other boys' schools that I would have applied for. Right. Um, I would have, I, it, you know, it was the attraction of Wellington, Wellington College in this, you know, liberal town, uh, sophisticated liberal town, and the challenge of, you know, the, the, the way in which boys' schools can give boys that sense of belonging, which is such a gift, you know, that's yeah. so wonderful, but also the creativity that comes from Wellington, you know, which... Yeah, Loris Edmund described as the world headquarters of the verb. <laughs> and I feel like at Wellington College we have this these wonderful traditions, the war memorial windows, the the um the the, the furniture from our nineteen twenty eight memorial hall, the clipboard that's been passed down from headmaster to headmaster for you know, apart from a brief excursion to Rongatai in the <laughs> in the past hundred years. And, you know, we we love the idea that that tradition and that connection with the past gives boys a sense of being part of something bigger than themselves and that that's a gift yeah but it's also in Wellington so it means that there's ideas colliding and there's creativity and when we give young people agency you know they can use those structures to create new things and new ideas and you know we have this new assembly hall and on one side is the assembly stage and all the things that we've done at Wellington College for a very long time, the traditions that we love. But at the other end is the performing arts stage and those beautiful moments where the school actually faces the other way and the performing arts stage sort of brings the, you know, the kids sort of take over and bring it to life. Mm. And it feels like, I guess, what we're trying to do here, use, use the tradition and the history of the school to create that belonging, but also to use the the... The, the creativity, the love, the the, the Wellingtonness to to sort of have a really creative future. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. I like yeah. the way you speak about that. Yeah, so that that's that's what we're trying to do. And of course, as principals, you, you you know you you often get pulled and you you know you often get pulled into the day to day sort of issues that you're mm. trying to resolve, and you don't always get uh, out up to those big ideas. But that that's what we that's what we're trying to do. Mm. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm just looking at the time and, and very thankful of, of this time that you've given me. So um, I just, there was one other thing that I was thinking about as I was driving in here and that I just wanted to ask you about. Um, and that's your use of te reo Māori. Like that has always, um, like I've always been really inspired by that. Has that been quite a deliberate journey on your part or what's uh, kind of influenced yeah, um, you? Well, um Again, I'm sort of quite grateful to my dad here. So when ah. I when I enrolled in when I enrolled at uh, Wellington College, well, first of all, I went to Otari School or Wilton School was called in those days, and in those days we did Taha Māori, you know, and and we did Kapahaka and things like that at Wilton School. Mm. So and and even probably at Wilton, I was a play centre kid, and I think you know Wilton School was like nuclear free. And sort of had quite a big sort of uh, taha Māori, as we called it in those days. And when I came to Wellington College, um, I initially enrolled in French. And my dad said to me, oh, your French is good. But, you know, I don't, I really, this is 1986 I started. He said, he said, but I really think like if you do Māori, I don't think we called it te reo in those days. He says, I think you won't regret doing Māori. And I only did year nine and ten, but it got me a little start on it got me a little start on it. And then when I went to university, I just did stage, you know, that beginner's course. So I'm not fluent, but what I have had um, some really key people at different times give me opportunities to speak and learn big chunks yeah. of tarot. Um, and I can understand, you know, chunks and bits of it. And I don't know if it's improved that much and, you know, over the last, over the time I've been a principal, it's probably pretty static. But um, I just believe that tarot is just this amazing thing that makes me feel like a New Zealander. Mm. You know, I'm not Māori um, and I don't pretend to be. Um, but when I speak a little bit of tarot in, uh, in a like formal setting, um, which are just big chunks that I've learned, really, or little chunks that I've learned. Um, it's an exhilarating feeling, and I feel like it's connecting me to this place. Um, um, and um, you know that we uh, we you know we we made the decision when we did our review of our curriculum that we really wanted to value Tiro and that we would you know, make it part of what all our year nine students do. So, you know, we had a slight reset of our junior curriculum. Um, we have a, just a 24 period cycle and if all eight learning areas have three hours. And um, for half a year, our year nines do te reo Māori and the other half year they do another language that they choose. Um, and that's a decision which has been universally approved of here mm. it's been embraced by our whole community and of course people said oh how are you going to staff it how are you going to staff it but of course you can't staff it until you create the problem and you know when we advertise for a tarot teacher having made the decision to you know make um tarot maori compulsory for all our year nines we suddenly needed a second tarot teacher and of course we'd shown that we valued it and so when the amazing rochelle was a parent here mm -hmm. you know and had you know and we feel so guilty for taking her from St Mary's but when she turned up here she was like well this is a school that values te reo Māori because they have said it's important enough for all of the year nines to do yeah and it was a really important lesson of actually not finding excuses not to do something but actually saying this is important and then we'll staff the school yeah um, because of course our timetable and our rooming reflects the current curriculum so it's always going to be a bit messy or tricky to sort of do that but if we did that we would just be the same the whole time um, so that has been a really great thing and I think one of the things about being at Warren College and similarly the other thing we've you know we've done in the last couple of years we, we got rid of all the streaming in year nine so we stopped streaming year nine classes because we just believe that um 12 and 13 was just too soon to be ranking kids and because our value was community and well-being mm -hmm. you know community and oranga our you know two key values we thought actually while we are really committed to acceleration let's not make that our focus in year nine let's let's focus on 
you know, bringing everyone together and not separating them out. And again, the community really came with us on that journey. Like, they were fine about it, um, partly because I think we had some good stuff around differentiation that we could that we could do. But um, I wanted to do both those things at Paraparongu, and we never quite got there. And I think that there's a privilege of being at a school like one in college that has such big community buy-in, that is so clearly committed to excellence, <laughs> that it gives us space to maybe do some things like that. And our hope is that, you know, I mean, I know we're not groundbreaking in either of those things, but I hope that by doing those things, we can give the Paraparomu colleges of this world the, you know, the scope to also do those yeah. sorts of things. Because when I was at Paraparomu College with the streaming argument, I was worried that if we got rid of the banding of the top classes, that some able students wouldn't come. Yeah. to Wellington College because they would feel that we weren't committed to excellence um, and that feels like less of a risk here um, so yeah so so yeah the tarot is, um, is is important it's important for all of us and it, it you know I think that um, you know at, at Paraparomu we're part of the Kiki Panaku um, program as you guys were at Aotea and one of the things for the classroom observations was what's in this room that shows that this is a New Zealand classroom? Yes. So what is it in our curriculum that shows that this is a New Zealand curriculum? Yeah. And Taro is obviously, you know, the taonga that makes that scream that, you know, that that's valued. Yeah. It's interesting you, you reference that from Ke Ikipanuku. I forgot that that was where I heard that from in terms of what, what do I see in this school that, you know, that says it's uniquely Aotearoa. Yeah. But that's what, I mean, I go into many, many schools now and that's, I, I always think that going in, what can I see, what can I hear mm. that, that tells me that this is, is in Aotearoa and that is unique to our mm. our culture. So, yeah, that, that's, it was really interesting learning from being part of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in our challenge here, we also have 100 Pacifica, Pacific Island students at Wellington College, which is, you know, huge for a decile 10 school um, in New Zealand. And um, and one of the challenges with the bicultural things is um, making sure that the other, you know, so the bicultural stuff is important. Everyone accepts the tangata whenua status of Māori. Um, but how do we, sometimes in doing that, there can be an unintended consequence, which is maybe some of our Pacifica people are like, where's our voice and space we see all the te reo maori that's up and around and the school prayers being translated into te reo maori so what else can we do you know to mm. to ensure that our other ethnic groups feel like they're not having to park their cultures um to come to a school like wellington college mm. so that's so one of our next challenges is to get our coal values translated into a range of pacific yeah. languages and to think about ways and the beautiful things about the translations it gives the concepts this depth of and new understanding and meaning that is so rich yeah oh well again thank you so much Gregor for this such time. a pleasure surely no one's listening by this stage <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like I could go on and ask you so many questions but um but it is, it's just been fabulous kororo so thank you oh, um and yeah all the best and I really just look forward to keeping in touch and, yeah. and checking in every now and then with, with how things are going. So, right. kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks so much, Celia.